0: Hi, I'm Eden.
1: And I'm Nicole.
0: Welcome to Roadside Hard Show. We are in Kansas again this week. And Nicole, I believe that you said that the there weren't that many weird laws in Kansas.
1: I mean, in the grand scheme of weird laws, there were ones that we were very familiar with. Things like hon- you have to honk your horn to alert horses that you're pulling up. Things like that. Nothing that really jumped out to me.
0: So it'll be a skippable thing this week. But we promise you that next week... Well, not next week. The following week, we'll have Weird Laws. Yes, Weird Laws.
1: I mean, on the upside, I have a fantastic True Crime story that I'm
0: super jazzed
1: to dive into. And it could possibly be a bit of a long, on the longer side. So it might be nice that we're skipping the laws this week.
0: Yeah, my story is a little bit longer, not like super long, but it's a little bit longer too. So we'll be good.
1: Well, so without any further ado, I guess I'll dive in unless you have something else, Eden.
0: I do not believe that I do.
1: Cool. All right. So today we're heading to Cherryvale, Kansas, a small city in the southeastern part of the state. Home to about 2,400 people, Cherryvale covers about two square miles. It was plotted out by the Kansas City, Lawrence, and Southern Kansas Railroad in 1871 on land that was previously occupied by the Osage people. The Osage were pushed out by American settlers, many of them veterans of the Civil War, who began coming to the area in the late 1860s to claim homesteads. The city was named Cherryville due to its proximity to the Cherry Creek, which ran through a valley nearby and was officially incorporated in 1880. In 1889, natural gas deposits were discovered in Cherryville And that quickly followed by oil deposits, which allowed the city to grow and fuel local manufacturing. Today, Cherryvale is still home to multiple manufacturing facilities for companies such as John Deere, Standard Motor Products, and Southwire. Ooh, fun. Now, if you're looking for some fun in Cherryvale, you can stop by Newton's Gifts, which is a family-owned gift and home decor shop that stretches over four buildings. It's been a fixture in Cherryville for over 95 years and features the original 1960s candy counter filled with classic and modern sweet treats. If you need more to fill your tummy than just some candy, you can get a quick bite at ABJ's Cruiser Cafe, which I hear is one of the best places to stop at in Cherryville for a quick bite and a coffee.
0: I'm down. Uh, If you're looking for some fun times
1: after you filled up on candy and coffee and you're jittery.
0: Food is fun times. I don't know what you're talking about.
1: (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. (laughs) If you want even more fun times, you can head to Cherry Bowl Lanes and Grill. That's right. Cherry Bowl. Super cute name for that place. I like it. Uh, They have some reasonably priced bowling. And yes, they do have glow bowling, which I, I know I love. Oh, yeah. I did that once. Yeah, it's fun. All the black lights and the disco balls. It's fantastic. Yeah. Also, too, apparently a lot of the locals recommend the Cherry Bowl as having some of the tastiest burgers in town for a reasonable price. So all in all, I am in to stop
0: by the Cherry Bowl. You got me with good burgers. (laughs) God, how am I not 300 pounds at this point? (laughs) I
1: don't know, dude. (sighs) I'm impressed. (gasps) Uh, another essential stop that you'll want to make in Cherryville is the Cherryville Museum. It promotes and preserves the history of the city with an emphasis on native celebrities, such as the iconic Jazz Age film star and dancer Louise
0: Brooks. Okay, I know who that is.
1: Mm-hmm. And actress Vivian Vance, aka Ethel Mertz, the best friend slash partner in hijinks to Lucy Ricardo on I Love Lucy.
0: Yes.
1: Mm-hmm. I was really shocked, like both to learn that both of these delightful actresses grew up in Cherryvale.
0: That is really cool. I did not know that. Oh, and I did just look up Louise Brooks to make sure she was who I was thinking of, and she absolutely is. She mm-hmm. to me is like whenever someone mentions flappers, yes, she's the face that I immediately go to, even more so than Clara Bow.
1: Hundred percent, yeah. As a flapper, definitely. The museum also features some exhibits on the infamous subjects of our story today. They've been dubbed America's first family of serial killers. Let's meet them, the Bloody Benders.
0: Ooh, I know the Bloody Benders.
1: I figured you might. It's a pretty, pretty popular true crime story. And as I was digging into this more, it became apparent to me why I love this story. It's always been one of those stories I'm really fascinated by. Um, however, as I learned more about the history of what was going on in Kansas at the time, it turns out that, that the story of the bloody benders that we all know, which is pretty straightforward and gruesome, is a little bit different when you look at it through the lens of, of history. So I figured today I would share the parts I love about the story, which is all the creepy goriness of it, and then also talk a little bit about the history of what was going on in Kansas at the time and why there might be a little bit more to the bloody benders than we first might hear about. Ooh, fun. Uh, Like I mentioned before, uh, the area really started to see settlers after the Civil War. A lot of the folks coming to Kansas at the time were Civil War veterans. They were looking to start a new life, set up their own homesteads, but they weren't the only people who ventured west looking for a better life or just a place where they could live the life they wanted to. Many Black Americans came to Kansas to find a better life and even establish their own communities. So you'll find that in Kansas, you'll have all Black communities like the town of Nicodemus. Kansas also attracted a lot of hopeful utopian socialists. Um, they desired a place to test out their sociological principles. Looking into it, when I think about American utopianism, I think about you know the transcendentalists setting up all those farms in like New England and upstate New York in the 1840s. Well, I guess this is just a thing Americans love to do. Um, Like The last 50 years after the Civil War in Kansas, about 10 different utopian communities were established. Some more successful, most not so successful.
0: Um, As you would imagine.
1: As one would imagine, correct. So I want to tell you, Eden, that I actually... Discovered a connection to one of our earlier podcasts as I was doing some research on these crazy ass utopians who trucked it out to Kansas in like the 1860s and 70s. Really? Okay. Remember when we learned about Orson Squire Fowler and his octagon houses? Yes. Awesome. I'm so glad you remember. So his name popped up. And it turns out that his idea of creating these octagon houses for better light and air circulation and just a healthier life really caught on with other people who were also into things that he was into. You know, phrenology, vegetarianism, octagons as like the ultimate shape. Okay. One of those people was this wealthy man named Henry S. Club. He was British, he was a vegetarian, and he was super into. All of these theories that Fowler put forward.
0: Henry S. Club
1: 7. <laughs> S. Club 7. <laughs> so Henry S. Club, not S. Club 7, led a bunch of like-minded vegetarians out to Kansas to build a settlement where residents agreed to not only abstain from eating animal meat, but also tobacco, alcohol, and they built all of their houses as octagon houses. They planned the streets in the shape of an octagon. And oh they even built their their barns where their animals lived as
0: octagons. Like, they loved octagons. So was this like a sacred geometry thing?
1: I guess. And also kind of like the, a blend of that and like the kind of New Age phrenology Victorian thinking. For my God. <laughs> yeah. Either way, Octagon City only really lasted for like a couple, a year or two before everyone could realize they couldn't hack it and kind of abandoned it. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> um. So it wrapped up in all of these like radical experimentations that were happening in. in Kansas during this time. Uh, you have a bunch of, you know, kind of wacky and, but also socially reform minded utopians. You have these free love vegetarians. There's also this golden thread that goes through so much of Victorian culture, and that's spiritualism. Okay. As you and I know, spiritualism is this religious movement based on the belief that the spirits of the dead exist and they can communicate with the living through various people and methods. And of course, spiritualism is also one of those things where it kind of ranges from like the very like calm spiritualism, if you will, where people are using things like seances and Ouija boards to contact the dead all the way out there to much more wacky things where you might have people who are are clearly over the top, pretending to be psychics, kind of taking advantage of people who might be grieving uh, the loss of a loved one.
0: Oh, yeah, that happens a lot.
1: The interesting thing about spiritualism is that it wasn't like a religion, but it also like ran through a bunch of other social movements. So you would have people who believe in spiritualism and who would say, hey, you know, this is the right way to move society. I know because I'm the reincarnation of like Jesus Christ.
0: Oh, God. Well, I ran into those people and working in mental health. Yeah. Yeah. But these people were just spiritualists. So I guess <laughs> potato potato. I guess.
1: Yeah. <laughs> The interesting thing is that these spiritualists at the time, in certain areas, they'd be kind of kicked out, looked down upon, because they were preaching this very radical way of viewing the cosmos. Okay. A lot of them decided that, you know what, I'm going to go out west because it's a place where I can just live however I want. So spiritualists, along with everybody else who was super into Manifest Destiny at the time, ended up in Kansas. Makes sense. So you have all of these groups – In this huge melting pot, and they're kind of going out west, and just kind of like the folks who went out to Octagon City, some folks underestimate the the difficulty and also the danger of venturing out west. Not only were settlers susceptible to disease and illness, hello, Oregon Trail, no one wants to die.
0: Oh, I talk about Oregon Trail in my story too, so (laughs) –
1: no one's died dysentery. Um, but there's also, like, really real dangers from, like, roving bands of Native Americans mm-hmm. who have been kicked off their land and are just trying to survive and wage war. Like you've war. talked about last episode. hmm Exactly. But there's also gangs of outlaws and criminals. They could bring to the gambit of, like, horse thieves. They could be... Um, Civil War veterans who never were able to reintegrate into society, and they would just become highwaymen out west.
0: So now these horse thieves, were they like, here's an ice cream cone in my back pocket? Come on.
1: <laughs> Possibly. I mean, uh, probably not this time because I don't think the ice cream cone was invented yet. Oh, well, okay. And then, of course, there's also lots of wild animals out west: wolves, coyotes, you name it, bears. It's not exactly a walk through the park. Now, the area where Cherryvale is today, southeast Kansas, in particular, was known as a really rough area, and that was due to all the various trails that passed through the the region, as well as the area's history of bloodshed that led up up to and during the Civil War. Um, There were a lot of raids and violence that happened during the Bleeding Kansas period that we talked about a little bit last episode.
0: Yeah. There was a lot of Bleeding Kansas stuff in the history of my story, too.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Now, despite these dangers, a group of five families, mostly German immigrants who were all active in the spiritualist movement, arrived to set up homesteads uh, in the township of Osage, which is about seven miles northeast of Cherryville, in October of 1870. The existing homesteaders in the area found the group a bit odder than usual. Uh, They had a pretty cult-like devotion to the principles of spiritualism. And among the five families, the Bender family stood out as the oddest. This was mostly due to their general disagreeableness and their daughter's profession of mediumship.
0: Interesting. Okay.
1: The Benders are made up of four people. There was John Bender Sr., who was described as a gruff German immigrant man in his 60s. who spoke very little English. But when he did, it was very difficult to understand his English because it was very guttural. His wife, Elvira, who was in her 50s.
0: Elvira. Elvira.
1: I just think of that. What is that? That Oak Ridge Boy song?
0: (laughs) Oh, see, I I just think of. uh,
1: (laughs) Mistress of the Night.
0: Yes. (laughs) And it's so weird to see her without the wig because you don't expect her to be blonde. No, it's it's quite the shock. Uh,
1: His wife, Elvira, as I mentioned, she was in her 50s. She spoke English, but with a very, very heavy German accent. She was reportedly the most unfriendly of the Benders, and neighbors definitely did not like her. They would call her she-devil behind her back and generally try to avoid Elvira. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) There was their son, John Bender Jr. He's described as a handsome, auburn-haired young man of 25 who spoke fluid English. He did have a slight German accent. He was also a nervous giggler, apparently. A lot of sources mentioned that he would, quote, laugh aimlessly. And that his nervous giggle kind of made people think he was slow or a quote-unquote half-wit.
0: Okay. I could see where they're going. hmm
1: mm-hmm. Then there was daughter Kate, and she was described as very well-spoken and cultivated. She was about 23 years old and quite attractive with auburn hair. She was the most outgoing and friendly member of the Benders. She was fluent in German, English, and French. She was a self-proclaimed medium and faith healer. A lot of sources called her a doctress, which is basically someone who would offer services of like faith healing or folk medicine and would only accept payment if her customer's illness was remedied through her efforts. Okay. I I like her better than the other ones. Mm -hmm. And that's how most people felt too. (laughs) (laughs) Kate's beauty and her natural outgoingness and sociability made her popular in the local community despite the fact that her family kind of sucked. And there was a lot of um, situations where I imagine Kate sort of having to speak up and smooth things over with people when they encountered her very gruff and, you know, her gruff family who maybe just because of their language barrier didn't always come off as the friendliest. Yeah. Um, So as she got to know people in the community, she started um, speaking out about her passions beyond spiritualism. She was passionate about things like women's suffrage and free love, these very wacky ideas for the time.
0: Oh, how wacky. Women having rights? Come on now. <laughs> too much.
1: Uh, too much. You're, no, you're crazy. <laughs> uh, obviously, this led to Kate getting a reputation for witchiness among the more conservative members of the Osage. Of fucking course. Yep. Like, she's she has thoughts of her own and wants things. What a witch.
0: <laughs> <laughs> she wants to be treated with respect and as an equal. A oh, witch. <laughs>
1: So the, the Bender men were the first to arrive in 1870. They staked a claim of 160 acres of land that was adjacent to the Great Osage Trail, which was like the big road that people would take when they were heading out further west. Uh, on the land, they built a one-room cabin, a bomber at a corral, and they dug out a well. Elvira and Kate arrived in the fall of 1871. And when they arrived, the family planted a two-acre vegetable garden, apple orchard just north of the cabin. Now, they figured they were at a pretty good location and they wanted to take advantage of their proximity to the Great Osage Trail. The benders decided to set up a store and inn in their tiny little cabin. So they strung up a canvas wagon cover to divide the cabin into two rooms. The larger front room was used as like the general store. Uh, They just both basically sold like dry goods to folks who might need to refresh their supplies as they headed out further west. They also had the kitchen and the dining room table, the dining table in that area of the cabin. That way, if a traveler did stop by, they could purchase a hot meal and and enjoy it at the cabin. They had a small back room um, on the other side of the cabin that was used as a family living quarter, and that's where really their beds and all their personal effects were. Most of the locals didn't really patronize the Bender Inn, except for the small group of spiritualists who lived in the area. They called on the benders pretty frequently, and mostly they were coming over to see Kate, obvious. Because she's hot. Because she's hot and friendly. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, For her part, Kate also started attending Sunday school in nearby Harmony Grove, and she'd bring her brother John along with her. And that really helped the family kind of settle into the local community a lot better. And once she started you know, making friends, she also started circulating flyers about her psychic powers, and she began holding regular seances and lectures on, again, some of her favorite subjects, spiritualism and free love. Perfect. Way to keep on making friends, Kate.
0: So she's a witch and a harlot. Exactly.
1: <laughs> now, her activity did draw more folks out to the Bender property, but it also started A bunch of, surprise, unseemly rumors about Kate. Um, Of course. And of course, it was that. Exactly what you're saying, Eden. They were like, she's not just a medium, but she's a witch. Like, she worships Satan. She'd talk about free love. And free love is one of those weird, like, especially when you talk about it in, like, the 19th century concept. It's one of those very large terms that covers a bunch of things. It could be anything from, you know what we consider today, like polyamory to what we would call today, you know, serial monogamy. Like I just want to be able to date people and like explore yeah. relationships with them without marrying them. Is <laughs> like a general concept of free love. A lot of people thought that when she would talk about free love, it kind of reflected poorly and on her relationship with her brother because the two of them are very close. And some people started, started some nasty rumors about how unhealthily close they
0: were. Yeah. Cause like what, when was this? Was this the late, eighteen uh, late hundreds?
1: Yeah, the eighteen seventies.
0: Yeah, exactly. So these were very unheard of concepts back then, where especially, today it's a lot more normal, but back then it was like, oh no.
1: Yeah, especially like in some place like Kansas where you have a lot of folks who kind of are just, you know, trying to set up farms <laughs> and then you have this seemingly educated woman kind of sweeping with all of her fancy ideas and oh also she can
0: talk to the dead. Yeah, exactly. They're gonna not be <laughs> too fond of that.
1: Exactly. So meanwhile, at the same time as the Benders are cozying into their home in Osage Township, the township starts experiencing an unusually high number of travelers who are going missing or being killed. In May of 1871, the body of a man who was local, his name was Jones, was discovered in in nearby Drum Creek. He had his skull crushed and his throat slit. Most people didn't immediately worry about this. Because after all, the Great Osage Trail could be dangerous. They just thought maybe he fell victim to criminals on the road. Then in February of 1872, two more men were found dead with the same injuries as Jones in the same general area of Osage Township. By 1873, reports of missing people who had passed through the area had become so common that travelers started avoiding this part of the trail entirely. They would just take a day or two and go around Osage Township. One of the people reported missing during this time was Dr. William Henry York, who lived in nearby Independence, Kansas. Uh, to give you a feel of how close Independence is to like Cherryvale, it's about 12 miles. And again, you're talking about seven miles away from Osage Township. So it's relatively close in the grand scheme of travel. Yeah. In the spring of 1873, Dr. York set out from Independence to look for his friend and former neighbor, George Longcore. You see, in the previous winter, George had left independence with his young daughter to resettle in Iowa with his parents after his young wife had died in childbirth. After helping Longcore secure supplies for the trip further west and seeing him off, Dr. York waited to hear word of Longcore's safe arrival in Iowa. Word never came, and that really inspired Dr. York, who knew Longcore from the time they served together in the Union Army during the Civil War to go out and look for him. So Dr. York sets out on the Osage Trail, and he starts stopping at homesteads to ask if anyone had seen Longcore. Eventually, he reaches Fort Scott, which is about 95 miles away from Independence, and he stays there because his brother, Ed York also lives in Fort Scott. He's there for a few days, visits his brother, and then begins the journey back home to Independence on March 9th, 1873. Fortunately, Dr. York never arrives home. Ed York wasn't Dr. York's only brother living in Kansas. His other brother was a man named Alexander York, who was a colonel in the Union Army, a lawyer, and he happened to be a member of the Kansas State Senate. He lived in Independence as well. And so when his brother didn't return, Colonel York organized a search party of 50 men and set out to find his brother. The search party hit the trail and they stopped each and every traveler along the way and stopped at every homestead they came across to ask questions about the doctor's whereabouts. On March 28, 1873, Colonel York arrived at the Benders Inn to question the family. They admitted that, yeah, sure, Dr. York had sta- stayed with them and suggested that maybe he could have run into some armed criminals or Indians after he had a meal at their cabin and left. The colonel agreed that could definitely be a possibility. And he had dinner with the benders that night before continuing out in his search again. As Colonel York began questioning more of the homesteaders in Osage Township, he started to hear the gossip about the benders and not just them, but also about their fellow German spiritualists. The gossip really unsettled the colonel. He was a pretty traditional and stand-up guy. uh, To give you a sense of that, only a year before he had exposed corruption when U.S. Senator Samuel C. Pomeroy tried to bribe the Senate state legislatures during his bid for re-election. So when Colonel York begins hearing these rumors about this witchy woman and her mean family who live out uh. <laughs> near the great Osage Trail, he, he, he's a little bit more suspicious that, than I, perhaps your average person since he is such a traditional guy. So when he hears from another homesteader about a rumor that a woman reportedly fled the Benders Inn after Elvira Bender threatened her with a knife. The colonel's like, "Yeah, we gotta go out. We, I gotta talk to them again." So he gets some some armed men, pulls them from a search party, and they head back to the Benders' place. Uh, he tries to question Elvira, but she does that classic thing that a lot of people who speak English as a second language do, where she's like, "I don't know. Don't
0: we'll oh, speak no. English."
1: And at that point, Kate and John Jr. step in and they basically deny the story on their mother's behalf and try to smooth it over. The colonel's like, yeah, but what I heard was that she like tried to chase this woman with a knife and that's when Elvira lost her temper, starts shouting at first in German and then switches to English, claiming that the woman she chased off was actually a witch who had cursed her coffee pot. Oh, Jesus. (laughs) She's screaming at the men to get out of the inn and off the family's property and she were to form, Kate's like, "Hmm, okay," and takes over. She tries to smooth things over as best she can. She pulls the colonel aside. She's like, "I'm so sorry, you know." My mother's obviously very upset and nervous. There's, there's a you have a bunch of armed men that you brought into And there's into a cursed coffee
0: pot. Come and on. there's a cursed coffee pot, which is terrifying. <laughs> I mean, understandable that she'd be a little frustrated.
1: Yes. So Kate basically tells him, hey, you know, I do have an in with, you know, the spirits. I can use my psychic abilities to help you find Dr. York. If you want to come back on Friday, that's going to give me time to calm my mom down. And, you know, she's really freaked out by all these armed men right now. And, you know, it would probably be better if you came back by yourself instead of bringing this whole posse with you. Colonel York, which is probably good for him, says, thanks, I'll consider your offer and then leaves. He never ends up going back that Friday, which is probably for the best.
0: It's yeah, definitely for the best. <laughs> Listen, I'm just going to set you up so we can murder you. It's exactly. cool though. Just exactly. come back. It's the only way that we're going to get rid of this cursed coffee pot. I mean,
1: it just works better when you're by yourself. <laughs> so as they as as, cur- as the Colonel and his men leave, his men are like convinced that the Benders have something to do with this, as well as the their next door neighbors. The next home over is this family, the the roaches, and they're also these German spiritualists. His his group of guys is like, you know what? They're guilty of something. I don't know what it is, but they're they're dirty. Let's. I think we should hang them all.
0: <laughs> oh wow. Okay,
1: that's that's a, a strong viewpoint. Yeah. Well, they're all immigrants, Eden, and according to the rumors, their religious beliefs aren't just that they believe in like spiritualism, but they're like blasphemous, possibly satanic, and they're definitely definitely witches.
0: Okay, well, you know, then it all just makes sense. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, Colonel York stands up to his man. He's like, no, that's not right. We need to have evidence before we take any action against these people. Otherwise, we'd, we'd just be as bad as they are. So we'll we'll wait and see what we can find out and see if they, they actually are guilty of something or if they're just a bunch of religious weirdos. Colonel York continues on a search and his search activities basically start to whip up all of these hostilities and accusations of misdeeds in the local community of Osage Township. Because you have this like weird mixture of like traditional Christians, conservative farmers, a bunch of immigrants of different ilks, and then spiritualist families in the township. There's a lot of natural tension. And all of these pointing, all the pointing of fingers and missing travelers has just Cause that tension to cha- turn into a powder keg. So the township trustees arrange a town meeting in, Harm- in the Harmony Grove Schoolhouse to discuss the wave of disappearances and hopefully reduce some of the tension in the township. Colonel York and about 75 locals, including the Bendermen, show up for the meeting. Everyone talks about the known disappearances, including that of Dr. York, and they vote on a solution that should help in some way. They decide that they're going to get a search warrant issued to search every homestead between Big Hill Creek and Drum Creek in the hopes that they can rein in the rampant accusations of foul play among neighbors. So kind of the idea of like, you looked at my farm, there was nothing on it, you know, you got to step down and also possibly in the hope that they could turn up any clues about the fates of the missing travelers. Three days after this community meeting on April 6th, a man named Billy Toll is driving his cattle past the Bender Inn, and he notices that there's no activity at the cabin, there's no smoke coming from the chimney, and the animals that he can see look pretty haggard and unfed. Toll reports what he thinks is this abandoned property to the township authorities, but Inclement weather had rolled through the region, so it prevented the trustees from investigating it for several days. When, While they waited for the storm to pass, the township trustees called for volunteers for a search party. They were concerned that whatever malevolent actors were involved in all the disappearances of travelers in Osage Township were now preying on local homesteaders like the vendors. Hmm. Mm-hmm. They're in for a surprise.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: Now, Cor- Colonel York and a good majority of his search party returned to Osage Township to ins- to assist with the search of the Bender homestead. Searchers in the barn discover that the Bender family wagon and horses are missing, but all the other livestock looked like they were just abandoned and left behind uh, without any additional care, kind of abandoned in a hurry, if you will. Other searchers in the cabin find that m- almost all the food's gone and most of the family possessions. Oddly, most of the everyday clothes that the benders wore were still at the cabin, but their finer clothes, like their Sunday best, those clothes were missing. In the stove, they found remain- the remains of what looked like personal and property papers, as well as burnt pieces of canvas.
0: Huh.
1: Finally, they found unscathed, among all the personal papers, a family Bible. Some sources say it was a Catholic prayer book. And in the book, there were several notes in German jotted down. Uh, the notes said, Joanna Bender, July 30th, 1848. John Gebhardt came to America July 1, 18, and year unclear. John Bender, July 1848. October 6th, Henry born in Harve, died December 4th, 1860. Then in what some sources say was a different hand, Um, but may have been the same handwriting. It's a little hard to tell. There were much more disturbing notes. These notes stated big slaughter day, Jan 8th and hell departed. The men Mm. in the cabin were a little horrified by this. And then (laughs) as they made their way towards the back of the cabin, they noticed a terrible stench.
0: Oh God, here we go.
1: (laughs) Here we go. Indeed. Buckle up dear listeners. They push this bed aside and they discover under the bed, there's this trap door that's nailed shut. And that's where the stench is coming from.
0: I already don't like this.
1: (laughs) They pry it open and they discover this earthen room. It's about six feet deep. And at the top, it's about seven feet square. and And then as it goes towards the bottom, it's about three feet square. So it's kind of like a pit. At the bottom of this earthen pit, there is a stone slab. And on the stone slab, the searchers can see several pools of clotted blood. They believe that the stench is coming from this blood and that some more blood is probably soaked into the soil or that maybe there's some remains under that stone slab. So they grab a sledgehammer that they find on the barn and they smash the stone slab, but they don't find any decomposing remains there. Then the men, this is this blew my mind. It just kind of set the tone for how, like, how much of a shanty this cabin was, <laughs> The men physically lift the cabin and move it.
0: <laughs> oh, wow. Okay.
1: And they dig underneath it. Again, they still don't find any remains. Now, they're thoroughly convinced. Obviously, something awful has happened here at the Bender homestead. Yeah. So they start spreading out their search. They have some metal rods and they start prodding the, the ground around the cabin to see if they come up and turn up anything, like perhaps bodies. Uh, Then they moved to the vegetable garden and the apple orchard just north of the cabin. And that's where the search party finally finds Dr. William Henry York. He had been hastily buried face down in the vegetable garden, his feet barely covered with soil, about 200 yards from the cabin. As evening fell, the searchers discovered nine more graves in the vegetable garden.
0: Why would you want that near your food? I know you're trying to hide the bodies, but... Yeah. Ugh. Yeah, that's see, not the right kind of fertilizer. Yeah, exactly. And as much as like I would love to solve crimes and maybe be a detective and stuff like that, I don't know that I could deal with the smell of decomposing bodies because just last night I had to pour grease into my little grease jar that I have. Mm-hmm. And just taking off the lid, it smelled so bad that I kept almost throwing up.
1: Yeah. So yeah.
0: I don't know that I could do the smell.
1: Yeah, from it's it's a smell unlike any smell, and uh, all the Vicks Vapor Rub in the world probably doesn't help.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was <laughs> like, I need a nosegay just to get through this.
1: So the next day, the searchers come back to the Bender Homestead, and they already identified the nine graves. Now they start searching the rest of the property and digging up the bodies. From the orchard, they find nine bodies. This was kind of weird because this is where the history and the newspaper reporting kind of goes off the rails. Um, some news reports said that there were actually 11 bodies among the nine graves. Uh, other reports say it was just nine, nine bodies they found in the orchard. Uh, searchers also pull a body from the well. And along with that body, they find several other parts of bodies that don't belong to the corpses they've pulled from the vegetable garden in the apple orchard. Um, almost all the bodies showed signs of a violent death Uh, they had their skulls partially crushed their throats were cut and had been quote indecently mutilated not 100% sure sure what that is again the historical records a little bit sensational about this so grain of salt that
0: can you be decently mutilated like I don't don't understand
1: (laughs) that's an excellent question friend (laughs) uh a majority, almost all the bodies, except for two, were men. Uh, the searchers found a body of a young woman who had similar trauma to her head and a slit throat, and they also found the body of a young girl. She didn't have any apparent injuries, so they speculated that she maybe she was strangled or even horrifically buried alive.
0: Ugh! No, oh, yeah. that's one of my biggest fears. I do not want to be buried alive.
1: Yeah, it's awful,
0: awful. I don't plan on being buried at all. So, yeah. <laughs>
1: Interestingly enough, none of the bodies were identified as members of the Bender family. Huh. This led the search party to immediately suspect that the Benders were the killers, which kind of makes sense. No, you think? It's like, oh, I stopped by your house. I found these dead bodies and you're nowhere to be found.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What are we to believe from this?
1: Hmm. Now, local witnesses who had visited the Bender's cabin before this give a good account of what the setup was. And then authorities, when they were trying to piece together what happened, think, and based off of the trauma on the victims, they think that the Bender's MO was basically this. They would give the intended victim a seat of honor at the head of the table. And this seat was conveniently positioned over that, over a trapdoor that led to the earthen pit. When the vic- that would also place the victim's back to the curtain then kate would come in and entertain and charm the guest while john bender or john bender junior would come up and hide behind the curtain and then pop out and strike the guest in the skull with a hammer and then cut the victim's
0: throat delightful yep it's giving me lavinia fisher flash- flashbacks
1: right little lavinia fisher a little bit like sweeney toddish maybe with like mm-hmm. a like a dash of bluebeard thrown in there for charm I could see that. Then they figured they'd probably drop that body into the trap door. Once it was in that pit, they would, one of the vendors would descend down, strip the body of anything it had on it, and then they'd store the bodies in that little pit before they would bury it somewhere else on the property. Although some of the victims were pretty wealthy, like they'd be carrying, you know, a couple of thousand dollars on them because they were heading out west to build a new life, which, you know, in today's money, would probably be the equivalent of forty or $50,000. Uh, others had nothing of value, so local authorities just assume that the benders killed them for the hell of it. They just love the sheer thrill of murdering travelers.
0: Probably the closest thing to the truth.
1: Yeah, maybe we'll see. now. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like a bender, a bender apologist, but not really. But yeah, who knows? The township trustees notify the sheriff, of course, about the discovery. The sheriff, the deputies set off. They notice the tr- like a trail for a wagon track trail. <laughs> Um, that leads away from the homestead. They follow it for about twelve miles north of the Bender cabin. They end up just outside the city limits of Thayer, Kansas, and that's where they find the wagon with a team of starving horses still hitched to it. Ooh! It seems that the occupants had abandoned the wagon after one of the horses had had pulled, uh, broken a leg, or went lame somehow. Uh, the deputies. Determined that the Benders had indeed made it to Thayer and that they purchased train tickets to Humboldt, Kansas. In Chinute, Kansas, the family split up. They were able to confirm that the Bender children switched trains for one headed to Texas. And their parents had continued on the, the current rail line they picked up in Thayer to Kansas City before heading to St. Louis. From there, the trail went cold, however. Uh, Colonel York offered a $1,000 reward, which is about $22,000 today, for the arrest of the Bender family. Many people looked for them. No one found them immediately. So on May 17th of of 1873, Kansas Governor Thomas A. Osborne upped it and offered an additional $2,000 as a reward for apprehending the family.
0: Big spender.
1: Back in Osage Township, the locals were understandably horrified and angry, and they turned on known associates of the benders. So basically their friends, their fellow German spiritualists. And it was pretty awful. Uh, One of the stories is that the crowd dragged a other German spiritualist by the name of Brockman out to the bender property. Then they strung him up on a beam until he lost consciousness. Uh, They revived him interrogated him to find out what he knew about where the benders went and then they hung him again from the beam until he passed out.
0: Wonderful. They
1: did this 3 times. What the fuck?
0: Wha- it's like, uh, okay.
1: I know. It's like vigilante justice. It's how could this possibly be a good thing? <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: Surprisingly, they don't kill him. They release Brockman. A lot of, a lot of sources said that that was at the time when the sheriff stepped in and dispersed the crowd, so mm, maybe he survived by the, by just the luck of the sheriff showing up, but Regardless, several weeks later, Brockman, along with 12 other men, were arrested as accomplices slash associates of the Bender family. Almost all the men were German immigrants or part of the spiritualist community in Osage Township. The charges ranged from helping to dispose of the victim's goods, sell their horse teams, and also one man in particular was accused of writing a note to a victim's wife to assure his wife of his safety. It's pretty unclear from my research if any of the men who were arrested were ever punished after their arrest, or if they were sentenced to anything, or if they were let go, my suspicion is that once things calmed down, these charges were eventually dismissed. Yeah. What is clear from the historical record is that only a handful of the bodies were identified and claimed by the next of kin when they were found on the Bender property. What can be positively confirmed is that the bodies of Dr. William Henry York, William Boyle, George Longcourt and his daughter, Marianne, Henry Mackenzie and Benjamin Brown were all claimed by their family and buried at, in their respective family properties. Uh, the remaining victims were never claimed, and they ended up being reburied at the base of a small hill about one mile southeast of the Bender Orchard. The location is now known as the Bender's Mound. There's several locations that claim to be the Bender's Mound too, so that's another lovely little historic discrepancy in this whole case. Now, all of this confusion is pretty much due to the limited forensic knowledge of the 1870s, but a majority of the misinformation around the victims and even the benders themselves is this intense media frenzy that popped up in the middle of a very gossipy, backbitey rural township in Kansas. (laughs) Where the murder spreads really quickly, like how could it not? It's such a good news story. And more than 3,000 people descend on Osage Township. And this includes reporters from as far away as New York City and Chicago. These visitors all head out to the Bender homestead. In the process of people looking for souvenirs, the Bender cabin is completely destroyed. Like, they take everything, dude, including the bricks that lined, like, the cellar and the foundations. They take all the stones that were used to build the well. It's just nuts. And, of course... With any kind of crazy nutty story where the villains are missing, people start seeing them everywhere. The Benders start popping up all over the country, people seeing one, two, or all of the Bender family just all over the place. We have reports as far away as like Chicago is pretty common, so is Texas, uh, and then occasionally like Boston, even California. The nation was fascinated with this story for quite a while. However, slowly it faded from the national press. But in Kansas, newspapers still regularly reported on the benders and speculated about their crimes and whatever happened to them for the next 15 years. And this is where it gets super weird. And I think... A lot of what we hear about when you first learn about the bloody benders comes from, it comes from this this period of very salacious gossip. So this is where you hear the salacious tidbits about Kate and John Jr. having this incestuous relationship. Or wait, maybe they weren't actually brother and sister, but they were secretly husband and wife.
0: Weird. Okay. Right? I like it.
1: <laughs> You'll also hear stories about how the benders ended up escaping, and they went to this outlaw community that was just over the – the border in Mexico, and they lived the rest of their life there, and no llama would go arrest them because it was just too dangerous. You'd hear stories about how the benders killed not just the the 11 people there, but they could have had upwards of 20 victims. Who knows? Um, A lot of the sources have different names for victims, a lot. And then, of course, there's the folks who say, I was almost a victim of the benders.
0: Oh, of course.
1: You know, yeah, I went there for a meal, but something was weird, so I, I skipped out. And then, of course, there's my favorite tidbit of rumor mill related to the Benders, and that has to do with the story that Laura Ingalls Wilder would tell. Laura Ingalls Wilder would say, because her family did live slash pass through that area of Kansas, although the dates are a little bit out of pace, It was probably a little bit earlier, a little bit later than when the Benders were around, But when Laura Ingalls Wilder was on like promotional speaking tours and someone would ask her about the Bloody Benders, she would tell the story about how Pa Ingalls was part of that search party who looked for them. And when Laura asked him about it years later, he said, Don't worry, quote, they'll never be found. I'm like, What?
0: Pa Ingalls? Very strange. Yeah.
1: So it's just nuts—the idea that like this family was some kind of like murderous cult of killers who were working their way across the West and were never ever caught. It's truly terrifying. Um, now this regional press continued, and that reward money that was put up by Colonel York and the governor was available for years, and it had some real life impacts. For decades afterwards, women who were traveling through Kansas, especially if it was a mother-daughter pair, were often identified and accused of being Elvira and Kate Bender, regardless of their age or appearance.
0: Wow. So it's just like, oh, well, you're them even though you look completely different.
1: Yeah. Even though you're not the right age, whatever. People would just be like, they're the Benders. I know it. So it kind of was this like weird hysteria paranoia. Now, one of the most serious times this occurred was in 1889 when a Mrs. Elmira Monroe and Mrs. Sarah Elise Davis were arrested for larceny in Michigan. They were released and then based on the witness statement of one of the one of the daughters of a Bender family victim was rearrested for the Bender murders. Now, these two women had their identities confirmed, quote unquote, by two Osage Township witnesses from a tin type photograph of the benders. And there was so much belief that these two were actually Kate and Elvira, that the Osage Township sheriff went to Michigan and brought the women to Kansas to stand trial. Back in Kansas, there was just a series of witnesses for both sides saying like, yes, these are the benders. No, these aren't affidavits from various sources saying that these these women were completely different people. Like yes, they were criminals and they had, you know, committed like fraud and larceny, but they were not the Benders. Eventually a judge says there's just there's just not enough proof that these could possibly be the Bender women, especially after the defense attorney submitted proof that Mrs. Monroe was actually in prison in Chicago in eighteen seventy two. So yeah, that's how crazy things got in this part of Kansas.
0: <laughs> wow.
1: Now, here's the part that I think is the most fascinating, right? So you definitely have these dead bodies, but nobody knows what happened to the benders. And we're never going to know, which is the infuriating part. Yeah. Like historians have identified possible suspects over the years. A lot of them tend to be, you know, older German men who killed people with a hammer which is interesting because I think in retrospect, just like ex-murders, as from that modern point of view, we forget how common a tool, a hammer would be or how an ex would be. So of course, it's something you would use all the time for murder, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. It's right there. It's convenient. Mm-hmm. Then there's some people and some sources I read that said maybe the vendors never even left their homestead. Maybe they were murdered by either an associate, the true person who was murdering all of those people, or... Maybe they were caught by a posse. Uh, Maybe Colonel York's search party went vigilante and he wasn't aware of it. Yeah. That would certainly explain the uh, wagon that was abandoned so suddenly. True. I just think all in all that while you can't deny that something terrible and bloody happened at the Bender homestead, I don't think it's as crazy as we think it is. I I often wonder if it was something where perhaps – and maybe Kate wasn't directly involved, or maybe the Bender women were sort of just innocent victims as well of those, these bloodthirsty spiritualists, or maybe people who just got desperate.
0: I, I feel that like definitely they did something, but I think that a lot of it was very much sensationalized. I mean, it was so long ago that we have no way of knowing, mm-hmm. and stories tend to just get crazier and crazier as the years go on. Plus, you have a community that didn't really seem to like them to begin with. so. Agreed.
1: I feel like somebody was killing people.
0: <laughs> yeah. Somebody
1: was killing a lot of people. It probably was the benders because that's the simplest solution. However, it could also have been more than just the benders is kind of how I view it. It's like maybe there was maybe maybe their neighbors
0: really were involved somehow and Exactly. Like look at the facts of Lavinia Fisher versus the legend of Lavinia Fisher.
1: There's your proof that things can spin out of
0: control. Exactly. Like your precedent for for that
1: but yeah, that that's my story of the Bloody Benders. Hopefully, it was a little bit more a little bit more interesting than some of the other tales you heard about, you know, unsuspecting travelers being butchered in a cabin.
0: Yeah, I liked it. It was good. Um, the Bloody Benders were something that I thought about covering when it told me that they're in a different state, and then I was like, wait, that's Kansas. It told me it was this state. Great. Okay, now I got to find another one. This one seemed interesting. <laughs> so I'm glad that you covered it.
1: Good. Good. Uh, My sources for today were Wikipedia, ChipAdvisor, Glassdoor, Medium.com, CrimeReads.com, and Kansas.com.
0: All right. Thank you, Nicole. We are going to take a quick break, and I'll be back with the news and with my story for the week. All right. We are back, and I do have a news story for you this week. It's a little different than something I normally would do, but I liked it, and I think that you guys will, too. It's a little heartwarming.
1: Tell me the news, Eden.
0: Mariska Hargitay responds to girl who used tip from Law & Order SVU to catch Kidnapper. So Law & Order SVU star Mariska Hargitay on Thursday praised the 11-year-old Florida girl who used a tip from the show to help catch her would-be kidnapper. Hargitay, who plays the perv-busting cop Olivia Benson on the NBC crime drama, called Alyssa Bonal brave and smart in her heartfelt Instagram post. Alyssa, first and most important, I am so relieved and grateful to know that you are safe, Hargitay57 wrote next to a screenshot of the Today Show's coverage of the tale. And I am so honored to be part of your incredible story. You are one brave, strong, smart young woman. I think the SVU squad might have to add slime to their crime-fighting gear. Take good care of yourself and each other. With all my love, your number one fan, Mariska. So, the girl's daring feet captured national attention when footage emerged showing her boldly fighting off a knife-wielding attacker at a bus stop in Pensacola today. During the scuffle, she smeared a homemade blue slime that she'd been playing with on the man's arm. Her mom, Amber, 30, said her daughter knew to leave some sort of evidence behind, like on Law & Order SVU, which they regularly watched.
1: Wow.
0: I knew that that might be better evidence if the cops do find him, Alyssa explained later on the Today Show. When cops captured suspect Jared Paul Stanga, he allegedly had blue dye marks on his arms. He was charged with attempted kidnapping, aggravated assault, and battery. Target has played Olivia Benson for 22 seasons on the Emmy Award-winning series. And this was from page six, by the way.
1: Nice. I remember hearing about about this little girl fighting off her abductor, but I did not hear about Mariska's uh,
0: response. Tw-
1: yeah, her response. Thank you.
0: Yeah, I thought that was really cool, and I'm just like slime. She use slime. How does she use slime? I'm like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I just thought that was cool and a bit more um, upbeat than what we normally do. So why not?
1: Yeah, great picky, and thanks for sharing that news story.
0: Absolutely. And now. For everyone to be scared out of their wits, I have my other story.
1: (laughs) Excellent, excellent.
0: My story for this week takes place in Leavenworth, Kansas. Leavenworth is in Leavenworth County, and obviously since it has the same name, it's also the county seat, as well as being the largest city in the county with a population of 35,251 and an area of 24.31 square miles. It's situated along the Missouri River, Leavenworth was founded in 1854 and was actually the first city to be established in the state of Kansas. This city was actually a hot spot for escaped slaves to flee to before the abolition of slavery in 1865. Now, from that statement, you'd assume that this place was filled with people who were anti-slavery, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, it turns out that that wasn't exactly the case. And during this time, there were actually a lot of fights that broke out in the streets about those matters, so there were people on both sides that felt very strongly on this issue. Another interesting tidbit about Leavenworth is that at one time, it had one of the largest Jewish communities in the state of Kansas. As for things to do in town, you can go to the Richard Allen Cultural Center and Museum, which is very much what it sounds like, a museum. There's also ample shopping, if that's your thing, because they have a 28-block historic shopping district, according to Wikipedia. There's plenty more to do here, but I also wanted to talk a little bit about some famous people that lived in the state. since this is where one of my favorites from the 90s lived. Melissa Etheridge. (laughs) I remember you saying that she was from Kansas last time. Yes. And then it turns out she's from Leavenworth, or at least lived there. Uh, Charles Henry Langston also lived here, helping slaves before the abolition and fighting for Black rights after. Also, two big Wild West names we all know from this city as well, Wild Bill Hickok and Buffalo Bill Cody. The major draw of this city for most people, though, would have to be the city's largest employer, a historic landmark, and the subject of today's story, Fort Leavenworth.
1: Ooh, I remember coming across Fort Leavenworth when I was researching my story I'm excited you're doing it.
0: Yeah, yeah, this one struck me as the most interesting. There was one... uh this one well or or spring or pond or whatever that I wanted to do as well, but it I tried looking into it and it was just like not that interesting, so I decided to switch over to this one. Cool. So Fort Leavenworth was built in 1827 and is actually the second oldest army post west of DC. Fort Leavenworth is also known as the intellectual center of the army. The fort was established by Colonel Henry Leavenworth to protect the Santa Fe Trail, which was an important commercial highway until the 1880s, which connected Franklin, Missouri, and Santa Fe, New Mexico. They built the fort 20 miles upstream on the west bank of the Missouri River due to the possibility of flooding if it had been any closer. The first installation here had 14 officers and 174 enlisted men. It became a lot more important after it became, quote, the eastern terminus for the Santa Fe Trail and the Oregon Trail, end quote. Who else got flashbacks involving dysentery and starving to death if you even made it that far?
1: (laughs) I made (laughs) it (laughs) to
0: It increased in importance yet again after the incredibly shitty, oops, I mean totally not wrong in any way, shape, or form, Indian Removal Act of 1830. Because, you know, you need to defend yourself against the people whose land you just stole. They might just be a little angry about that for some odd reason. Who can say, really? No. (laughs) Why would there be hard feelings? So because of all this, they changed his name to Fort Leavenworth from the original name Cantonman Leavenworth, which uh, Cantonman is just a regular old military post or garrison. So it just kind of got upgraded. Gotcha. This place has seen many wars, and I will like get into that a little bit, but not much, because there was so much, and it was so boring for me, because <laughs> I'm just like, war, war, war. Um,
1: <laughs> like, I get it, the military.
0: Yeah, but the most interesting one for me has to be in the 1850s, when the military was called upon to take care of the, quote, Mormon problem in Utah, which is referred to as the Utah War, Mormon War, or Mormon Rebellion. Mm-hmm. Did you ever hear of that, Nicole?
1: I have because I have a fascination with early Mormon church history because I feel like Mormonism is such an interesting religion because it's like the only – like religion that really developed in America. It's and very beca-
0: strange. It, it is. And because
1: That's why, because like, because it's for an American religion it has all of the weird parts of the American conscious wrapped up into it. But yeah. And, and early Mormon history is really fascinating because it's just fucking nuts. Like you don't realize how, how truly violent um, the westward expansion in America was oh, yeah. until you learn more about like th- how the Mormons were basically chased across the country and then, you know, started fighting back.
0: Yeah, they they ended up dealing with a lot of persecution from a lot of places. Mm -hmm. So, like, I just thought it sounded so weird and I didn't spend a whole lot of time researching it. I couldn't find a real beginning to the war. But what I found on Wikipedia basically was just like so they sent out the military and the Mormons said, oh, shit, they're going to kill us. Let's make bayonets out of sides and defend ourselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So all I really know is this bit of weirdness was ordered by President Buchanan. There's also a military college on the property, too, from my understanding. Uh, One of the more interesting things I found out about the history of this place is that it was home from 1875 to 2002 to the USDB, or the United States Disciplinary Barracks, which is what it sounds like, an army prison. Oh, From what I know of it, it's the only maximum security military prison that houses male soldiers convicted of crimes that usually relate to national security and such. So like big time offenders. Gotcha. Uh, This is actually where Chelsea Manning
1: was held. Okay. That makes sense.
0: Um, When building this prison on site, they did one of my favorite things ever with these prison stories that we cover, which is use the inmates to build the damn building. <laughs> it might save money, but it also seems like a bad idea since they know the layout of the building now really well and, you know, it just makes escaping a whole lot easier. Oh, and it also seems a little morally uh, ambiguous to me, but, you know. But the funny thing about this is that the prisoners from this facility were also used to build the nearby US penitentiary as well, which is just like what? what? Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's super weird. Uh, the building was made to house 1,500 prisoners, and it was modeled after the plans for Pennsylvania's Eastern State Penitentiary.
1: Interesting.
0: Yeah, so it's got the cell blocks that are radiating out from, like, a central structure. hmm There was a pair of really fucked up deaths here in this building where two brothers named Joseph and Michael Hoffer were jailed for refusing to enlist after being drafted for World War One. So, they're both ended up being placed in solitary confinement, beaten, and finally starved to death for this, which is what just complete fuck? bullshit. Yeah. What the fuck? Yeah. They took draft dodging seriously, I guess.
1: I guess. Jesus. Way
0: more seriously than it needed to be taken. <laughs> you don't want to fight for your country? All right. You'll just die right here.
1: Yeah. That's, that's nuts.
0: Yeah. There's also a cemetery outside where prisoners are buried who died while incarcerated and weren't claimed by family. There are around 300 graves here. Also, I believe it was Henry Leavenworth or some. It was definitely a military person um, who was buried out there, too. But I don't but don't quote me on the exact person because I remember reading something, but I couldn't find it again when I went back to check. Mm -mm. So who knows? There's also a death row here. And since 1945, there have been 21 executions. Each one that I know of has been by hanging.
1: Wow. I'll just say that's very like interesting that it's hanging. But I guess because it's a military prison, the rules are different, right?
0: Well, they have it listed as their form is uh, lethal injection, but everything's been hanging so far. So. Gotcha. One notable thing that should not be of any surprise is that this facility had some pretty poor conditions, and in 1919, there were two separate strikes to try to get someone to do something about it. I couldn't find a ton of documentation on these events, however, so I was a little disappointed, but don't you worry, there's still a lot of good information to come in the forms of hauntings and paranormal activity, which is what you're really here for anyway.
1: Yay!
0: So, I'm just going to roll right with it. In the chief of staff's quarters, people can still hear someone having tea parties, which is apparently something that the chief of staff did from time to time. Uh, No apparitions in there, just a bunch of ghostly slurpings, I assume. (laughs)
1: Listen, Eden, tea parties were very manly back then. Very
0: manly. Very manly. Your pretty little pink set. (laughs) There was once, and you know, of course they just have to have like their teddy bears all around and you know everything's perfect
1: that's colonel teddy bear to you
0: <laughs> show some respect <laughs> and petty sergeant panda
1: petty <laughs> <Teddy> sergeant panda
0: <laughs> uh there was once a church on the property that burnt down it was called the saint ignatius chapel and this area is said to be haunted as well uh In that fire, a priest was killed, and I do know that they used the materials that were still good from the original building to build the new structure, which always just seems to stir something up.
1: Yeah, I'm all for recycle and reuse, but you have to be aware of what you're recycling
0: and reusing. Exactly. So the ghost that haunts this place is known as Father Fred, and his name is actually on some bricks in the fireplace, which is made out of some of those reused materials that I mentioned. Interesting. Interesting. Father Fred is said to be seen walking up and down the stairs here, and uh, his picture was even taken in the 70s during a dinner party after his death. What? Yep. So he showed up in a picture. Weird possible coincidence or ghostly activity is that after the original church had burnt down under well-known circumstances, the rebuilt one also ended up burning down for seemingly no reason in 2000. Hmm. It was just like spontaneous building combustion. Weird. Yeah, the home of General George Armstrong Custer, that fucking guy. You know who he is. Yep, yeah, that fucking guy. Which is also on the property. Is said to be haunted by his ghost, which is another one that seems to uh to like to just walk around. He has some reason to be haunting the place, seeing as the fort is where he was court-martialed for mistreating his troops and leaving his post.
1: hmm
0: So, yes, I'm pretty sure we all learned about Custer. Yeah. The old disciplinary barracks, a.k.a. this is the, the prison that we mm-hmm. talked about, um, is another haunted spot. And it's made up of, like, 12 towers, not all of which are manned currently. Uh, one in particular, number eight, is an unmanned one, yet people have reported seeing movement from inside despite it being closed off. Like, there's no way in unless you go, like, around, like, the walks from one of the other towers. Weird. Yeah. What? So there's, like, no way in.
1: There's no way in, but people see, like, what – did you find any information, like, what they see? Like, is, like, a figure moving or is it's, it – Yeah,
0: just some guy walking around.
1: It's so spooky. Uh
0: Yeah. Uh. It's also uh, known that there was an incident here where a soldier shot himself in the head, which, of course, is a great way to start a haunting. Mm -hmm. People at Fort Leavenworth have also been known to get phone calls coming from Tower 8. But like I said, it's unmanned and weirder yet, there isn't even a phone in there. What? Yeah. And when they would pick up, it would just be static on the other end when someone, you know, answered. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. During a patrol of the area one night, there was also a report of someone in the tower pointing a rifle at the patrol car, but when they checked, no one was there.
1: Yeah, that's scary if you're that patrolman,
0: right? Like... Yeah, no, I, you can't pay me enough. Mm-mm. Not doing it. Uh, there also have been reports of someone knocking on a trapdoor entrance to the towers, and when they go to see, like no one's there. Uh, There's a haunted elevator, which no thank you, first of all, (laughs) uh, in building 65, uh, which used to house the hospital. Supposedly, and I don't see this being a real thing, but you never know because people are crazy. People say that 13 German POWs were hanged in this elevator, and that's what accounts for this occurrence. Apparently, you can still hear them screaming randomly. This random like screams just coming from the elevator.
1: Weird, weird on two levels. Like also, okay, screaming elevators sounds goddamn terrifying. But two, Germans in Kansas during World War II?
0: And also executions in an elevator?
1: I mean, I get that sometimes things get out of hand, but. Yeah. yeah, I agree. (laughs) Executions in an elevator.
0: It just, it seems, it seems weird. Um. So yeah, just weirdly ghost screams coming out of the elevator. Uh, There's a storage room on the third floor of this building, too, which is said to be haunted. This one seems like a residual haunting since you can see a ghostly figure in a wheelchair being pushed by another ghost. Okay, I don't know if they meant like pushed forcefully or like wheeled around. So that assumption is yours to make. Do you want (laughs) to sleep at night or do you not want to sleep at night? It all depends. (laughs) Um the officer's quarters is the scene of another haunting this one involved a mustached figure whose face has appeared in the fireplace while a fire was going on and i don't know but i think this just might be Sirius black trying to contact harry and he just dialed the wrong fireplace <laughs> Harry! <laughs> damn it gary oldman get your fires right So weirder still is that after the fire had died out, you could still see the face for a while.
1: Ooh, yeah, Yeah. that's super creepy.
0: No, thanks. Nope. He also likes to walk around one of the bedrooms in here and has also been seen shaving with a straight razor in the bathroom. Uh, God, if I still had to shave after dying, I'd be so pissed. People have also reported poltergeist activity here with temperature drops, loud footsteps, scratching noises, loud unexplained crashing sounds, and doors slamming shut on their own. Now we're going to get to the really scary ones. So there's this place called the Rookery. Okay. Which is the oldest house on the base because there's several houses as well. Uh, And this has the most ghostly activity with many reported spirits. It's actually considered the most haunted house in Kansas. And although this place has been continuously occupied from its creation, I don't know why anyone in their right mind would live here. Tenants say objects go missing here and then reappear in different spots and lights turn on and off of their own free will. That's all well and good. I can deal with that somewhat. Um, Here's something interesting. One family reported that uh, the remote for their TV... Disappeared as well as their cordless phone and cell phone. They ended up going out to dinner one night, and then all of the items were neatly stacked in the wife's purse of all places.
1: <gasps> no. Mm-mm. Yeah. Mm-mm.
0: So the same family also experienced issues the, uh, the ghosts had with pets. Mm. They would leave the family cat out all the time because they didn't want it in the house.
1: What the fuck? Cats are made to be. Yeah. Well, I guess it's Kansas, and it's a military base, so maybe it's safe for them to be outside. But
0: mm-mm. still, weird. And there's also like um, the, the cat was at the top of the stairs the one time, and they could see that the cat was afraid, and it seemed like something was holding the cat in place. And <gasps> in the fur, they saw almost like a hand holding it down. Oh no. Mm-mm. Yeah. Mm-mm. And that's still not the worst part. So there are several ghosts here, and I guess I'll start with the least terrifying to most terrifying, but I wouldn't want to see any of these. First, there's the spirit of an old woman who just kind of sits and mumbles to herself in a chair, which, although really, really creepy, at least isn't too bad.
1: Okay, I agree. I agree.
0: Then you have an annoying little girl ghost who can be seen and heard throwing tantrums. Which we don't even like from living children, so I don't want that sort of ghost shenanigans going on in my home. (laughs) Fair assessment. Fair assessment. I concur 100%. Then we have the ghost of an old man that seems to harass you while you try to sleep. He's said to wear a nightshirt and have bushy hair. That's like one of those, like, if I can't sleep, neither can you. Exactly. Like, apparently, like, he'll, like, pull your feet and pull off the covers. and Mm, No. Stupid shit like that. Probably sit on your chest. I didn't see that, but that's normally what always happens. Mm -hmm. And then finally, we have the scariest one of all, which also happens to be the most common, of course, because it has to be. (laughs) This is the ghost of a woman with long hair who is said to be the victim of some sort of violent incident, but I didn't really find out what that was. So here we go. She can be seen fucking rushing at you with her fingernails being used like claws getting ready to attack you. No fucking thank you. What the fuck? Yes.
1: You're like, I just got up to get some warm milk so I could go back to sleep because that fucking guy woke me up again (laughs) by pulling my feet. And you're like, dude, what the fuck? And this woman comes flying at you with nails out. Uh.
0: Exactly. No, I don't like her at all.
1: Like, I'm sorry, but that's the kind of like apparition that the first fucking time you see that, that you're like, we're moving out. I'm out. Yeah, no, I'm not saying. Mm-mm.
0: I would never sleep there again. Um, there's another haunted house on the property because why not at this point? Uh, this one's called the Sumner House, and this one is way better than the Rookery, thank God. So this house, uh, has the spirit of a woman who wears a black wool dress and shawl, who was a nanny at the house. Okay. She lived in the attic and she'd watch over the children. Uh, she's been said to take care of living children when they're upset, as well as help out with household chores. Like she'll do the dishes. She'll clean up a little bit. So I think that's pretty damn cool. She can make my bed anytime that she wants to, because Lord knows I never do.
1: Oh my God. Ditto. I'm like, when I tried, like, you know how people joke when they're bad at wrapping packages, looks like a T-Rex did it. Yeah. Not only can I not wrap packages, but my T-Rexness carries over to me trying to make the bed.
0: Oh, no. See, I just don't even bother because I'm like, I'm just going to get back into it. and It's going to get all messed up. Who the fuck cares?
1: No, I will generally spend time trying to make the bed and my wife will come in and be like, I thought you're making the bed. <laughs>
0: <laughs> One time that this this ghost actually left a book for a child living in the house, it just like appeared out of nowhere and it was definitely not a book that they had owned at all. Hmm. Uh, she does have a little bit of a mean streak, though. And gets jealous of other caretakers and grandmothers because she sees them as competition. So she isn't super violent, but she has been known uh, for pushing people out of the nursery if she feels you're trying to take her job from her.
1: I mean, that's fair. If that's like her worst manifestation, then I guess,
0: you know. Then, yeah, it's not so bad. She isn't here anymore, however, after one family living there just got too scared. And had an exorcism performed, and she pretty much said, fine, I'll go, but I'm not going too far. And she now resides next door, and people have seen her in the attic window of that house.
1: Interesting. Does she still – have they reported her doing the same kinds of behavior in that new house?
0: I don't know, because that's all I read about it. Mm, I wonder. Yeah. Our final haunted location in Fort Leavenworth is the cemetery. There's been some ghost soldiers that were spotted in the woods nearby just doing their thing. So it's probably more residual energy like a lot of soldier ghosts are. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You can also see the spirit of a woman uh, here that's just walking around and looking for her children. She'll call out their names. Uh, This would be the ghost of Catherine Sutter. And she is buried here in the cemetery after succumbing to pneumonia after her kids went missing. She never stopped looking for them even in the cold winter weather, which is when she got pneumonia. That's awful. Yeah, it is. They had sent out a search party for the kids, Ethan and Mary, but after searching for three days, they could not find them. They assumed that they were collecting firewood like their father, Hiram Sutter, had asked and got swept into the river. It turns out that this actually did happen, but... After Catherine's death and after Hiram went home to Indiana, he receives a message that the children were found alive.
1: What? Yes. That's incredible.
0: So after falling into the river, they were rescued by members of the Fox tribe, taking care uh, of them through the winter and then returned to the fort in the spring.
1: Wow. See, that's like kind of the tragic thing is like, you know, the Native Americans actually will take care of people. Yeah. It's like, hmm. It's like treat people with as people basically. Yeah. Nuts.
0: And then like the, one of the biggest functions of this entire military base was to control the native American issue. So Mm -hmm. yeah. Like we stole your land fair and square. We're going to keep it.
1: But like, we found some children and we brought them home. You're welcome.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I would be like very passive aggressive about it. Um, So there's also the ghost of a Native American man named Chief Joseph, who was incarcerated at Fort Leavenworth in 1877. I couldn't find out why he was incarcerated, though. I feel like Chief Joseph, I know that name. Hold on a second.
1: Yeah, so Chief Joseph was a Native American freedom fighter, basically, and he fought along with Sitting Bull. Okay. And he basically was fighting for his tribal land and gave the government all kinds of grief. So they plunked Which him in. good for him. Yeah. So they plunked him in the Fort Leavenworth along with four hundred other followers, um, and they were held as prisoners of war for about eight months, and it was yeah, kind of yeah. awful because there was lots of rampant disease where they were held, and many of them died. So it makes sense of that course. Chief Joseph might have some something to say about it in the afterlife.
0: Exactly. Yeah, and I'm sure that there were like a lot more ghosts that I didn't get to cover. Uh, So if any of you listeners would like to know more, I do believe that this place offers tours. So feel free to check that out. Uh, How about you, Nicole? How would you feel about going here? (sighs) This is a tough one, right? So like the fort itself kind of seems
1: interesting, um, especially, you know, because old like prison tours, like old, old prison tours can be interesting. Like uh, I enjoyed going to Eastern State Penitentiary and that sort of thing. But some of the other ghosts, around the 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 property like the ghosts in like the houses like the rookery like that sounds absolutely terrifying and that's a complete oh, yeah. nope for me. <sighs> um so I feel like maybe I would go to the prison, learn about a little bit more about its history, maybe swing by the graveyard. Um, I would
0: I would go to the rookery in the daytime with lots of other people. <laughs> but other than that, no.
1: No, I'll be at the cantina while you're at the rookery. It's cool. <laughs>
0: Like the other ghosts I can deal with, but that one that rushes at you with her nails out, uh uh-uh, uh, mm-hmm. no thanks.
1: Pass. That's a hard pass.
0: Yeah. So my sources for this week were Wikipedia, KSHS.org, or also called Kanzapedia, Legends of America.com, NVDatabase.swarthmore.edu, Army.mil, OnlyInYourState.com, and HauntedHouses.com. Cool. Thanks for
1: that story, Ian.
0: Absolutely.
1: Uh, if you'd liked what you heard today, feel free to give us a shout. You can reach us at roadsidehorror show at gmail.com.
0: You can also go to our website, which is roadsidehorrorshow.podbean.com. dot com.
1: You can stop by our social media pages. We are Roadside Horror Show on Facebook and Instagram and Roadside Horror on Twitter.
0: If you have a moment, please uh subscribe and review. Um, it really helps boost our visibility and we'll have other people find an easier way to listen to the podcast. They'll get to it quicker.
1: Very true. Very true. Uh, we'd like to thank E. Massey for our intro and outro music and Yox Rock's design for our fantastic logo.
0: Until next time, guys. Creepin, creep on, creeping creepin on. on.